Welcome to The Catholic Perspective, a podcast brought to you by rcspirituality.org. Enjoy the episode. The Apostles' Creed, the earliest summary of the Christian faith in the history of the Church, has only 12 articles. We still recite it regularly at the beginning of the Rosary. The Nicene-Constantinople Creed, the other ancient official summary of our faith usually prayed during Mass on Sundays, is a little bit longer than the Apostles' Creed, but it is still based on the original twelve articles of faith. When written down, the texts of those creeds can fit on a single piece of paper. But the universal catechism of the Catholic Church, the official explanation of our faith, is a thousand pages long. This shows how over the centuries the Church has grown in her understanding of what God revealed to us in Christ. In that sense, the faith of the Church has increased and expanded over the course of the past 20 centuries. But that doesn't mean that my faith or your faith is necessarily stronger than the faith of our Christian brothers and sisters from 20 centuries ago. The Church's growth in knowledge about the faith doesn't automatically accumulate in the heart of each believer. The depth, intensity, and vibrancy of any individual believer's faith can't be handed on as easily as mathematical knowledge. Our faith has a moral and spiritual dimension that makes it necessary for every generation, and indeed for every person, to discover and claim it anew. Progress in faith is spiritual progress, linked to spiritual freedom, which is very different from material or technical progress. In other words, every generation of believers has to go through their own journey of faith, just as the first apostles did. And so, every generation also has to endure terrible storms, storms that don't seem to make sense, just as the apostles did. And the Lord will make use of those storms to draw us closer to himself, if we let him. The history of the Church is undeniable proof of that. In our own times, the Church is suffering horribly, Persecution, apostasy, and blood-chilling scandal seem to be our daily bread. For those who truly love God and the Church, these storms can be profoundly disorienting, a true trial for our faith, just as the storm on the Sea of Galilee was a true trial for the Apostles' faith. One way to bolster our faith and keep our hearts firmly anchored in the midst of storms is to remember the crises of our older brothers and sisters in the faith, to remember the storms the Church has endured in the past. This can remind us that God doesn't make mistakes, that even when He seems to be asleep in the boat and unconcerned with our predicament, He is still loving and protecting us, guiding and sanctifying us. And in fact, when it comes to the history of the Church, the storm really is the norm. There has never really been a golden age free from strife in the history of Christianity. Every age has faced grave crises that strained people's faith to the breaking point. And in every age, those storms produced saints. The storms of our times can do the same for us. In fact, God is hoping that they will. Let's take a quick tour through the major periods of church history, just to show that this is indeed the case. We can start by thinking about the very apostles themselves. Of the eleven who witnessed the resurrected Christ, ten ended up being martyred, and the organized persecutions under which they suffered rolled over the church on a regular basis. 
like the ebbing and flowing of the ocean's tides throughout the first three centuries of Christianity. Eusebius, one of the church's first historians and a survivor of the final wave of Roman persecution under the emperor Diocletian, described the kind of thing that was done to terrorize Christians during those centuries with a view to stamping out the entire religion. He wrote, In Arabia, men were hacked to death. In Cappadocia, their legs were cut off. In Mesopotamia, some Christians were hung upside down and suffocated by the smoke of a fire beneath their heads. Sometimes their noses or ears or tongues were cut off. In Pontus, the martyrs had pointed reeds driven beneath their fingernails, and in other cases, molten lead was poured over the most sensitive parts of the body. These persecutions came to an end when the Emperor Constantine legalized and then supported Christianity. But even during his lifetime, new crises sprang up in the form of heresies, especially the Arian heresy, which raged throughout Christendom, violently dividing the church from within, pitting bishop against bishop, even at times saint against saint, for more than a hundred years. The theological controversies spawned by Arianism led to the emergence of other heresies, necessitating an ongoing series of ecumenical councils to defend true doctrine. During these centuries, patriarchs and Byzantine emperors conspired against popes and manipulated episcopal elections, opening the door to controversy and at times violent conflict between Arian Christians and Orthodox Christians. It even led to the abduction and torture of one pope. At certain periods during these centuries, the majority of the church's bishops were actually espousing heresy, while only a minority were preserving and promoting the true Catholic faith. The average faithful Catholic simply didn't know who to trust or where to turn for true Catholic doctrine. After the fall of the Roman Empire in Western Europe, the monasteries spearheaded heroic missionary efforts throughout the semi-barbarian kingdoms in England, France, and Germany. Each new monastic foundation and missionary venture ended up being irrigated by the blood of martyrs, and that pattern has continued until the present day. Sometimes we project the Middle Ages as a golden age for the Church because of the flourishing of civilization that gradually emerged during the thousand years between St. Augustine and the Italian Renaissance. And yet, every step of progress was accompanied by grim crises, by severe storms. Here is how one historian describes a particularly corrupt period of church history known as the Age of Iron, because of the penchant to use daggers instead of diplomacy among both its secular rulers, all professed Christians, and also its ecclesiastics. Quote, In the 43 years between 867 and 910, seven holy Roman emperors died, and an eighth was blinded by a rival. Of the 15 popes during these same years, four were almost certainly murdered. Several more may have been murdered. The dead body of one was put on trial and condemned. And the former wife and daughter of another, who had married before his ordination and separated after it, were murdered. The Muslims from the south and Vikings from the north, between them, brought fire and sword into almost every corner of Western Europe. Through all of Latin Christendom, the fires of faith burned low. Saints were few, and those few little known. End quote. 
Even 200 years later, when Christian knights from Western Europe took up the cause of the Crusades to liberate the sacred sites of the Holy Land from Muslim control and so once again make the way clear for pilgrims, St. Bernard himself described his age as an age of darkness dominated by evil. Quote, Now indeed is the hour of wickedness and the power of darkness. But it is the final hour, and the power quickly passes away. Christ, the strength of God and the wisdom of God, is with us, and he is on our side. Have confidence. He has overcome the world. End quote. Those very crusades ended in defeat and disaster with the fall of Acre in 1291. In that battle, Muslim armies slaughtered nearly 30,000 inhabitants, including entire convents and friaries. They took another 30,000 prisoners and carted them off to slavery, a stormy finale for a supposed golden age of Christendom. Toward the end of the Middle Ages, another storm racked the church from the inside. Pope St. Celestine V was elected to the papal throne in 1294. His election came after the Holy See had been vacant for two years, three months, and two days, simply because the twelve cardinals at the time couldn't agree on who should be pope. Imagine how not having a pope for more than two years would have affected the church. And Pope Celestine turned out to be a bad choice. He voluntarily resigned for ineptitude after only five months and nine days. Soon afterwards, the Great Schism divided Christendom for the majority of the 14th century. At one point during the schism, three different men simultaneously claimed to be the legitimate pope, and even future canonized saints didn't agree on which was the real one. We are all familiar with the sexual and political intrigues of the Borgias, the Medicis, and other worldly Renaissance popes. These became the remote cause for one of the greatest crises of all time, the Protestant Reformation, which has divided Christians up until the present day, splintering the body of Christ into hundreds, maybe even thousands of conflicting denominations, and doing inestimable damage to the Church's missionary efforts. After the religious wars that ravaged Europe in the aftermath of the Reformation, the seed of secularization found fertile soil. At the time of the American Revolution, Pope Pius VI described the resulting cultural malaise in terms that leave no room for doubt about the storm the Church was enduring then. Quote, Who would not be fearful at the present condition of the Christian people? The divine love by which we abide in God and God in us grows very cold as sins and wickedness increase every day. Who would not be shocked when considering that we have undertaken the task of guarding and protecting the Church at a time when many plots are laid against Orthodox religion, when the safe guidance of the sacred canons is rashly despised, and when confusion is spread wide by men maddened by a monstrous desire of innovation who attack the very bases of rational nature and attempt to overthrow them. That same Pope, when he was 81 years old, was arrested exiled and imprisoned by French occupiers, the military arm of the French Revolutionary Directory. Suffering partial paralysis and infirmity, he was dragged from Rome through Italy and up into Valence, France. One day, some visitors told him they admired his courage, 
and that this epic of pain and captivity became the fairest moment of an already celebrated pontificate. Pius VI replied, This may all be, but what afflicts us is to see the cardinals dispersed and persecuted. How is our poor Rome so dear to our heart? What has become of our beloved people? What is the future of the Church of God, which we are about to leave so rent and tossed? A few decades later, although the excesses of the French Revolution had been reined in, Blessed Pope Pius IX was still able to describe the situation of the Church and the world in truly apocalyptic terms. Quote, when we contemplate the whole Catholic world with the care and affection of our apostolic love, we can hardly put into words how deeply saddened we are at seeing Christian and civil society disturbed and thoroughly confused, oppressed and torn apart by all kinds of disasters. Moreover, you know very well how the Christian people are afflicted and harassed by ferocious wars, internal discords, plagues, earthquakes, and other serious troubles. In addition, it is lamentable that among so many injuries and evils perpetrated by the sons of darkness, who are more artful than the sons of light, they try energetically to wage a bitter war against the Catholic Church and its doctrines. In this, they use diabolic deceits, arts, and labors. They attempt to overthrow the authority of the Church's legitimate power and to corrupt the minds and souls of everyone. End quote. We could multiply quotations like that from every period of church history, including the harrowing descriptions of persecution in the 20th century by communists, Nazis, and fascists alike. The point of taking time to review this litany of misery is not to discourage us. Rather, it is to illustrate how God has chosen to unfold his plan of redemption. Although he surely shields his faithful from many storms, he doesn't shield us from all storms. And it seems that in his yearning for us to grow in our faith, to deepen our friendship with him by coming to know more deeply and more fully his infinite wisdom, goodness, and power, he has permitted storms to be the church's normal habitat. As we saw in the meditations, God knows what he is doing. He doesn't make mistakes. And so, in the midst of our darkest times and our wildest disorientation, we should feel free to go to the back of the boat and try to wake Jesus up with the cries of our heart. Jesus will surely give us what we need to continue loving, hoping, and believing. And in so doing, we will fulfill our mission in the world, whether or not we ever see the fruits of it on this side of eternity. Pope Francis emphasized the need for faith in the midst of storms in his apostolic exhortation on proclaiming the gospel in today's world. Quote, faith also means believing in God, believing that he truly loves us, that he is alive, that he is mysteriously capable of intervening, that he does not abandon us, and that he brings good out of evil by his power and his infinite creativity. Let us believe the gospel when it tells us that the kingdom of God is already present in this world and is growing here and there and in different ways, like the small seed which grows into a great tree. Because we do not always see these seeds growing, we need an interior certainty, a conviction that God is able to act in every situation, even amid apparent setbacks. End quote. 
God knows what he is doing. When we don't understand, we can take comfort in knowing that our brothers and sisters in the faith who have gone before us have also had their faith tested from apostolic times through postmodern times, and they found that God truly was faithful. You have been listening to The Catholic Perspective, a resource from rcspirituality.org. Please visit our website and check out more great resources to help you pray, learn, grow, and go. Please join our team of digital missionaries by subscribing at rcspirituality.org. Dot org.